Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's installment of the Gateworld Podcast. This is episode number 14 and today we're talking about The Lost Tribe, part 2 of Atlantis' mid-season two-parter that aired last Friday on Sci-Fi. We'll also give you a preview of our upcoming interview with Stargate SG-1 actor Corin Nemec. And of course we'll have the latest Stargate news and features from the site, plus more listener mail. We killed off David in the last episode, but it was all just a dream. Ha <laughs> ha! Funny. The Gate World Podcast starts right now. My name is Darren Sumner, and joining me once again is Gate World's co-editor, David Reed. Brought back to life. Resurrected in Gate World's own sarcophagus. Or the Wraith brought me back, or, you know, or... Sarcophagus. I'm a replicator that. copy. That's correct. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for October 14th, 2008. The Ark of Truth is coming to Blu-ray disc. The first SG-1 movie, of course, made its way to DVD last March, wrapping up the Ori storyline. According to Amazon.com, the movie will be released in the high-definition format on January 13th, 2009. Look for this release to have the same bonus content as the DVD edition, including the audio commentary by Robert C. Cooper, Christopher Judge, and director of photography Pete West, plus the Stargate at Comic-Con featurette, the Uncovering the Arc of Truth featurette, and that nine-minute prelude that recaps the ninth and tenth seasons of Stargate SG-1. The Blu-ray edition of the Arc of Truth comes with a suggested price of $34.99, but you can pre-order it now to Amazon and save a bit of money. Amanda Tapping's new fantasy series, Sanctuary, is off to a strong start on the Sci-Fi Channel. The two-hour series premiere averaged a 2.2 rating on Friday, October the 3rd. That's about 2.7 million viewers in the U.S. who tuned into the show. It's the highest-rated original series premiere for the cable network since Eureka started in July of 2006. Tapping stars in Sanctuary as Dr. Helen Magnus and also serves as an executive producer on the show. The series was created by former Stargate SG-1 writer Damian Kindler. Look for new episodes after Atlantis Friday nights at 10 p.m. I finally got around to seeing the uh, pilot. Yeah, what'd you think of it? It was a good watch. I enjoyed it. There, there were some flaws with it. Um, you saw the web series last year, didn't you? Yes, I did. How do you think it compared? Um, like, they're like night and day. You know, the, the effects are, are much higher quality. Mm-hmm. They're much more realistic. It was fun to, to see which scenes were reshot, which scenes were added from the original show. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a very good pilot, and I'm interested to see, uh, see how uh, episode two turned out. Yeah, I thought it was much stronger than the web series. I enjoyed the web series for what it was, but it was, I mean, it felt like it had kind of a, a big web series budget, and this i mean just the effects alone were so much stronger and cleaner and i really like the the adjustments that they made with the storyline uh drawing it out a bit more having a bit more pacing for the characters uh development for the characters and uh i really liked what they did with john druitt's character in in the the subplot of him trying to get inside the sanctuary yeah that was fun he watching him disappear at the gates then pop back out i was like that's cool yeah. And I have to – I was really thrilled that Ryan Robbins had a greater part. I, I just got done emailing Ryan. I was like, yeah, you're in it for good. Gateworld Features. We've added another batch of photos to the Stargate Image Gallery this week, starting with the first look at the upcoming Stargate Atlantis episode, Identity. 
We have a dozen photos from this episode, which is currently expected to air this fall in the number 18 slot. Also look for new photos from Brainstorm and Infection. Just point your browser to stargategallery.com or head over to gateworld.net and look for the images link on the main menu. Beware, there are some minor spoilers for these episodes in those pictures. In last week's podcast, we gave you a little sampling of our newest interview with Tony Amendola, who played Braytac on Stargate SG-1. The 11-minute audio interview is now available on the site. Chad Colvin sat down with Tony at a recent Stargate convention to talk about his remarkable role in the franchise. Tony also shares his thoughts on the late Donna Stavis and fills us in on what he is working on now. Fans of Jonas Quinn have made Corin Nemec our most requested interview in the five years since he left Stargate SG-1, and we are thrilled to finally have this one available in just a few days. David and I sat down with Corin this spring in Vancouver for a full video interview. He reflected on his time on the show during the sixth season of SG-1 and told us how he felt about leaving. Here's a preview for podcast listeners. It's interesting because working on Stargate, it's like, it's, it's as cool as the show is to watch, you know? It's like, the, the, the whole adventure of it, all the adventures that you go on, the, 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 uh, the, the uh, obstacles that you have to get over, the, the predicaments that you get caught in, uh, uh, the great writing, the dialogue, the, the, the different relationships. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, what I remember is it's like, I feel like I was on SG-1. You know what I mean? It's like, as, as silly as that sounds, it's like, that's what it feels like. Because, you you know, you film all of those scenes. You do all, everything that you watch in the show, you actually physically get to do. So it's like you've lived it in, 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 a, in, in a weird way, you know? I'm sure it's so, hard work working 12 to 14 hour days, but still it's fun playing Space Hero. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, actually on this show, it's like the, there's such a well-oiled machine. Uh, you know, 12 to 14, 12 hours is, is the average. Sometimes we'd even get out before 12 hours. And plus it's an ensemble cast. So you know it fluctuates on how on how much time you know yeah. you, you spend on set. You know yeah. if your if your character is a principal character in that episode, you're going to be on set more, but you still might end up with a day off. Yeah. You know, so it's like you know it was it, it was pretty rare that 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 every cast member shot every single day of every episode. You yeah. know what I mean? Check out GateWorld's very special interview with Corin Nemec later this week. A brand new interview with actor David Palfi is now on the site. David played Sokar back in the third season of Stargate SG-1, but you may know him better as none other than Anubis himself. GateWorld's Chad Colvin talked with David during Creation's Vancouver convention earlier this year. Here's a snippet for podcast listeners. Did you watch the series in the later years? No, absolutely not. I think the show sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's kidding. Okay, I'm just kidding. You know what I mean? But you did kill me off, so whatever. You know what I mean? Just um, kidding. <laughs> how do you think uh, either character, had they survived, would have reacted to the Ori, which was the threat that came after the ghoul in the later seasons? Together, Noob and Sokar, okay, they would have decimated the Ori, okay? And that's what people don't realize, okay, is that those two boys together, pff, it's unbelievable. They would have taken over primetime TV, all right? If, if that would have happened, they'd have Stargate 3 and 4 right now, okay? SG 1, 2, 3, 4, all right? Nubis and Soki. <laughs> <laughs> the complete interview with David Palfi is now available on GateWorld. The main discussion. Our main discussion topic this week is The Lost Tribe, episode number 11 of Atlantis' fifth season. This one's been a long time in coming. We get the big reveal as to who the new bad guys are. We've had to wait 
two weeks. Fortunately, we didn't have to wait three months like we did most seasons between the two-parter. I have to say, um, I think the first half was stronger. I liked a lot about this episode. The Obviously, the reveal of the Asgard was something I've been waiting for. Had I not known that it was coming, I'm sure it would have been a perfect episode. Well balanced of everything. you got to give it to the writers as far as that reveal goes of, of who's inside the suit. That was... Uh, for the, on as far as the writers go, that was a fairly well kept secret for a long time. Until about like two months ago, there was a big build up. I mean, they can they can only do what they can do, and they're producing the episodes. And and with first contact, there was a big build up to these guys, and uh, the fact that Daniel was kind of suspicious about the fact that they're probably not humanoid in there. He's he's suspecting that maybe there's something else going on. Uh, with their identity, and then he confronts them on it in this episode. So that's, I mean, that's a huge moment for the season. And oh, I yeah. Think for the whole series. And if we didn't know that it was coming, if I if I didn't know who was in those suits, I think that would have been like, um, you know, Picard as Locutus, sort of a huge yeah. reveal. Yeah, that's that's one of the downsides of being a part of online fandom. You get spoiled, you know. It's I mean, and it's even if you don't want to be, you will be at some point, you know. I mean, just with pictures alone, and you know, that's disappointing. I loved that scene, though, man. I mean, Joel pulled out all the stops. He brought back the theme from the Fifth Race mm-hmm. and played that thing perfectly. You know, that was just great. And the traveler element, I was not expecting that. That was that was pretty good. Uh, I've got to confess, the travelers uh, usually really bore me, um, and I don't know what it is. I I think that the way that the travelers were used in this episode was uh, was interesting. They didn't overplay it. They didn't suddenly make the A plot all about the travelers and their their role. It was just sort of that they arrived in Atlantis and provided transportation. They kind of fixed the problem. Uh, it's nice to know that uh, that the gates exploding, uh, which I was right by the way, uh, is mm-hmm. having an impact somewhere in the galaxy, and their their arrival served that purpose. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that the travelers add a really nice texture to the Pegasus galaxy. Uh, they they make it so that there's more than just a few hundred planets of you know farmers out there. Yeah. Um, but overall, I think they're. They're not very interesting. Shepard's apparent obsession with Laren is still a bit unbelievable to me. I didn't really buy their chemistry in in Travelers last season, and now that he's sort of, you know, oh, he's asking Katana, did she mention me? What'd she say about me? I I don't really buy it for Shepard. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing about them, though, is their ships. That, That set design is beautiful. You know, and it's so different than what we're used to. Atlantis is so is so scrubbed clean and perfect and pristine. You know, some parts of it are damaged, but when it comes to the travelers, uh, I mean, all bets are off. You know, that space feels lived in. The young gal who played the engineer in this episode, mm-hmm. Mila. I don't mean to disparage the actress, but she was getting under my nails. Every scene that she came in, I was just like, oh gosh. You know, and which is too bad. Uh, I was not, I just was not a big fan of that uh, of that role. Um, Zelenka looked like he had a pretty good time. I liked the effort. I liked what they were trying to achieve with it. But it, yeah, I liked I, I liked the idea that that they had a 15 year old chief engineer on this ship. You know, there are a lot of ships in the Traveler fleet, and they're Katana said that they've just 
for the first time in generations, established a, a colony on a planet. These guys have been spacefaring in, in this convoy of ships for generations. So it makes sense that somebody would grow up learning engines and would be in an engine room since she was four years old. Um, so yeah, I like that. I like the effort. Um, but I, I'm glad that they didn't spend any more time in that room than they absolutely had to. It was, it was yeah. kind of nice to see Zelenka out of his element and, and worried that, that Mila was pushing the engines harder than she should. She was going to burn them out. Um, and Mila was just kind of casual. This is the way that she operates. This is the way that the travelers operate. Um, I think it was... It didn't bother me a whole lot. I think it was just enough. If there had been one more scene there, or if Mila had been given a, one more line of dialogue, it may have started to grate on me. Mm. But she was pretty minimalistic, yeah. I thought. I, th- I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, the Travelers lost their ancient ship, but didn't lose Laren. I would have figured that Laren and that ship would have been very well attached, but somehow she managed to survive. Yeah, and apparently they lost the ship because of the Stargates exploding, and, and they lost yeah, their I colony. Think, so Yeah, I think it was on the planet yeah, surface. Uh, it made me think that they they must have landed the ship when they established a colony. Well, our good buddy Todd has obviously gone to some extreme measures for the interests of himself and the interests of the Wraith. Um, what do you think? Has he officially gone completely to the dark side? Is he a bad guy now, or is this, he's just acting in character expediently? He sure wasn't willing to listen to reason, you know, which is something that I normally don't consider Todd as being, you know? I, mm-hmm. I've, I mean, as I know that he's he's very self-driven, but you know, I I would have hoped that he would he would have been willing to listen a little bit more than he than he was, and just jumping to conclusions. You know, it made an interesting episode having the wraith on board and, and having having Ronan and uh, and Keller run amok. You know, that was that that made for some interesting television. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was just kind of an unexpected turn, you know, for this character. And I'm really curious if this is going to have an impact on our alliance with Todd and his coalition in the future. Mm. Um, he's, he's crossed a line, it seems to me. And, and from the viewer's point of view, at least, we can understand that if he would have sort of dropped his guard and been willing to trust Shepard and let Shepard go with him to try and, and you know, maybe not kill Daniel and Rodney when they got to the planet, even though they mm-hmm. had the, the mutual shared interest of, of stopping the new bad guys, the Asgard, and, and turning off the Atera device and destroying it. Um, you understand why Todd's not willing to let his guard down and trust Shepard that far, because he has no other means at his disposal. I mean, this is, if, mm-hmm. he can't, if he can't get there and stop the device, this is effectively the end of his race. And he was willing to... to- to destroy the Daedalus and kill everyone aboard in the process. Um, did you notice that Mitch Pelleggi wasn't in this episode? Yeah, yeah. He wasn't really needed there, though, but, I, yeah, it, you know, that um, he really crossed a line with that, you know? That's unforgivable, what he tried to do to us. Yeah, you know? that's that's much better than, than coming to Atlantis and not being willing to trust Shepard and not being willing to listen to the argument that, that we are not responsible for what's going on, that yeah. setting, setting the cruise control and jumping mm-hmm. ship. Without mm-hmm. without making any effort to, I don't know, maybe take the crew along with them on the Wraith cruiser. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, he got all his crew aboard in the uh, transport and took off. You know, so that had better have lasting per- repercussions in in future encounters. I think it will. I was a little disappointed that Todd's 
philosophical musings from from first contact were not really paid off. There was that didn't really come full circle at all. We talked mm-hmm. about this in last week's podcast where he says to to Dr. Keller, if if this treatment works where we don't have to feed on humans anymore, uh, what will that make us? You know, who will we be as a species? That it was it was a great moment, but it didn't pay off and there was there was no coming back around to that. No, it seemed like it was just to satisfy a certain moral element, and then part two was like all about the action. And yeah. I guess from Todd's perspective, he must have thought that this was a ruse or a diversion while we activated the Atero device and started nuking everybody. Yeah. We've got three plot lines, I think, basically running intertwined in this episode. We've got uh, Rodney and Daniel and their, their work on the planet uh, with the Asgard. Uh, number two, we've got Ronan and Keller trying to take back the ship. And then three, we've got uh, the the initial aftermath of the explosion on Atlantis, and then Shepard and Zelenka on board the Traveler ship. There was also some great moments between Todd and Woolsey, where Todd puts his hand or puts his arm around <laughs> him. And I loved that. That was mm-hmm. great. He was almost treating him like uh, a buddy until you think about the fact that he's threatening to feed on him. Then he's treating him like uh, uh, a turkey before Thanksgiving. Keep him really close. Yeah. And to just watch Woolsey squirm, I love that, you know. Yeah, now another little moment that I caught at the beginning of the episode was with Taylor and Zelenka when she helps him helps him get up after the explosion. And we talked last week about about Zelenka and whether his character had just become everybody's whipping boy. And Taylor's got mm-hmm. this really nice line where, you know, Zelenka says, we lost the Stargate in the control room, it's bad. And she says, but we did not lose you. I thought that was, that was, that was a great I little that. pat on the back for, for Raddick. I, I really liked that. Uh, I liked less of the fact that Taylor was again shoved aside at the very beginning of the episode, mm-hmm. um, left behind to command Atlantis. The link I could have just as easily commanded Atlantis, I think. But, uh, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, story-wise, I guess it, it kind of makes sense to have an engineer along for the ride, a, a science expert along for the ride, and Taylor, who's maybe more more used to making command decisions left in charge of Atlantis but yeah when Shepard told her to stay behind it's the look on her face I was just thinking well that it looks to me like that's Rachel saying I just got written out of the episode didn't I so and when we get back to the control room next week the glass had all better be clear like our glass you know otherwise I'm gonna have to raise the question where did they get the stained glass from Mm. I when I saw the state of the control room at the beginning of the episode, I thought, hmm, are they going to have a concluding scene in the control room at the end of this episode, and it's going to look perfect? Because yeah. that's I was so disappointed in uh, the return part two in season. Well, the three. replicators fixed everything. I know, and, and there was an obvious there was a there was an explanation for that. The replicators could could rapidly restore a, a pristine ancient facility including all of Weir's stuff on her desk and all of her <laughs> pictures but the explosion was so cool at the beginning of the episode where our team comes through the gate in the puddle jumper they drop a nuke fly out the window and the control tower explodes that was such a jaw-dropping moment for me that when we came oh, back yeah. 10 minutes later and everything was perfect again i was like what the heck was the point of that yeah 
Yeah, I hope that uh, they use this chance to shake things up in the control room a little bit. Well, now, the efforts of Ronan and Keller to take back the Daedalus, I've got to ask, is Ronan Dex a complete idiot? I yeah, he was kind of just shooting everything. Well, I know that he's uh, he's doing what he has to, well, the only thing that he knows to get the ship to stop, but at the beginning, when they're trying to break out of the room and and he's trying to pry the door open, and then the door flies open, and instead of looking out into the hallway, he immediately turns around and looks at Keller and says, See? Uh, that was so out of character for Ronan. That was the dumbest thing that he could possibly do, and I wish, I wish he would have gotten shot in the back. Because, I mean, we know it takes about three shots from a Wraith Stoner to take down Ronan. It would have been nice if they are going to make him look that stupid. At least let him get shot once and then turn around and shoot them then. It reminded me exactly of Whispers earlier this year when Captain Vega, played by Lila Savasta, turned right around and got sucked away. Well, now, what do you think, speaking of Ronan and Keller, about this awkward scene at the end where he uh, basically asks her out to lunch and she uh, kind of blows him off a little? It wasn't something that I was expecting, and uh, that that was nice. (laughs) It was nice that you weren't expecting it, or you liked the scene? It was nice that I wasn't expecting it, you know? She's made up her mind. Uh Um... And I think that that's nice for that character, that she's not playing them and that she's being straightforward with him so that he can look for someone else. Yeah, I still look at this and the final scene with Rodney and Ronan in Tracker, where he basically asks Ronan, what are your intentions? And um, I thought, I said in the podcast then that I thought that Ronan was just yanking Rodney's chain, that he wasn't really interested in Keller. But his response to this rejection makes me think that he he is interested in Keller, and it's probably because she reminds him a bit of his wife, Marlena, who was a nurse. We recognized that parallel, you and I did, back in quarantine in season four. Yeah. Well, now let's not skip over the evil Asgard too quickly. This is there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, some people have suggested that maybe bringing back the Asgard after their their grand noble. Uh, self-destruction sort of cheapens unending the last episode of SG-1. What do you think about that? Hmm. Well, first I'd like to say that I promised that there'd be a name for these guys in this episode, and obviously I was wrong. Yeah, where was the uh, name? That, that must have been deleted. a deleted scene. If we only knew the number of scenes they get deleted, I think we would be appalled. Well, there was some uh, some speculation on the forum that they might end up being called the Veneer, which I guess is from Norse mythology. Yeah, I've that's not the case. I suspected it, that it was the Veneer for a long time and uh, asked some guys uh, at Bridge, and that's not the case. They are not called the Veneer. Hmm. Um, but they have been given a name. It's just it didn't surface in this episode, which I really find disappointing because evil Asgard really sucks. Hmm. So... Um, did you notice the parallels between this episode and the original Stargate movie when Daniel confronts Ra and season nine's episode of SG-1 Origin when Daniel confronts the Prior? Daniel seems to be establishing all of our villains to a large extent, you know? Well, I didn't think about um, that. It's one of the questions that I want to ask Martin, you know? What was the reason for Daniel coming to Atlantis? And I hope his answer isn't, well, Just we just want to have Daniel there, you know. I, I want to know what the original spark was to have Daniel there, and I hope it was for that scene, because that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, he definitely had, does have that connection with the Asgard. He's got a personal connection, like he like he told the commander of of these guys. I mean, what should we call him? Should we call him Evil Asgard from now on? Until they get a name? Yeah, until they get a name. He's He said to him, you know, some some Asgard I count among my friends. Uh, so if, if you had stuck somebody from the Atlantis team in that room, like Rodney... 
he could say, you know, we know who you are. Um, I knew a guy named Hermiod who used to be on, yeah, exactly. on the Daedalus. Uh, there's, there's, it's not personal for anybody on the Atlantis team. You're Asgard. You've encountered our kind before. No, not just encountered. I've, I've worked with them. Even called a few of them my friends. Indeed. Of course, the Asgard I knew were a noble race who actually helped the human population in my galaxy. And where are they now? Dead. Hmm. But that had nothing to do with us. Are you certain? They were clones. Copies of copies of copies going back generations. And they suffered irreversible genetic degradation as a result. But you probably already know that. Of course. Because we are clones as well. Subject to the same law of diminishing returns. And yet, we are still very much alive. So what, you, you solved the problem? Not entirely. But once we were able to conduct our research without interference, we made significant progress. Research on humans. Because our physiology is similar to what yours used to be. Precisely. I take that back. I have met an Asgard like you before. His name was Loki. And he was experimenting on humans too. Until he was caught and brought to justice by the Asgard High Council. Because they did not believe. The ends justified the means. That's right. And look where it got them. Daniel's reference of Loki was golden. I loved that. Yeah, from season seven's Fragile Balance. That was perfect. Would have been upset if that had not been brought in, because Loki was the closest thing we had ever seen to an evil Asgard, to an Asgard who was sort of self-motivated and acting against the interests of humankind. I think Loki was definitely self-motivated, but I don't think he would have resorted to death and destruction. You know, mm-hmm. these guys are in it for themselves. They are in it to take over the Pegasus galaxy. Um, while at the same time using humans to try and fix the uh, genetic degradation problem, you know, which which is now an issue again. I didn't get the impression that they were militant at all, that they wanted to conquer the Pegasus galaxy, just that they were trying to survive and they were trying to solve their cloning problem, and they thought they could do that while the Ancients and the Wraith kept each other busy. So they came to the Pegasus galaxy during the war 10,000 years ago, and yeah, they grabbed a bunch of humans and started experimenting on them. Yeah, I didn't get the impression that they wanted to conquer the galaxy, just that they wanted the Wraith gone so that they felt free to move again and to begin to rebuild their civilization. Well, let's think about it here. The Replicators, the Ghoul, the Wraith, the these new guys now, the, uh, the original Replicators from SG-1. What arch race of ours doesn't want to conquer the galaxy. But um, that would be interesting, in my opinion, if, if that was not their motivation. You know, if their motivation is just to survive, but then begs the question, then what? You know? I got the impression, uh, at least from what little we heard in, in these few scenes, that this lost tribe of Asgard is still pretty small. Even though they've been in Pegasus for 10,000 plus years, they're still um, kind of hiding out and they're working on on solving their cloning problem, and he he gives Daniel the indication that they've made great strides forward in that respect. Um, But they're not this super advanced civilization that spans many planets and and even a couple of galaxies, Mm -hmm. like the Asgard that we knew. Um, Their ships, you know, one of their ships was taken out by a traveler ship, which doesn't seem to be extremely advanced technologically. So, um, you know, I don't think that their technology is at the point that our 
Buddy's technology was at. They don't have ships that can cross galaxies in a few seconds. They said that their intergalactic vessels were destroyed and they didn't have the resources to rebuild them. So I think we're talking about a lost tribe that's really, even after 10,000 years, uh, still pretty small. They've made some advancements in cloning. They've made some advancements, obviously, in their their armor and um, military tactics and strategies and, and weapons technology, maybe. But they're not a they're not a great, powerful civilization. Do, do you recognize the implications of some of this, though? I mean, I think I think the overall seed that we can suggest has been planted here is that if these guys can solve their problem, we can re-download the entire race of the Asgard from their core into mm. new clones, and the Asgard race could live again, theoretically, if these guys solve the problem in the process. Do we know if the Asgard core that they gave us includes copies of all their... They stored the consciousness of, of every Asgard in that core so that you could interact with them holographically. I'm sure through some stretch of sci-fi writing that could be interpreted as their collective consciousness. You certainly could. You certainly could resurrect them. What was up with the jewelry? You think those were health implements or just a distinguishing factor from Asgard to evil Asgard? The jewelry. So the Asgard commander that we saw has, has the little little thing on his head and then he's got and his breast yeah looks like a little bar on on his breast um yeah i like the the speculation that i read on the forum which is that the thing on his chest could be some sort of of rank insignia that's interesting mm-hmm. and that maybe the forehead thing was um like a health monitor i thought at first that it was something that would have been required for interfacing with the the exoskeleton suit but obviously daniel and rodney didn't need it yeah, that was another one of my quips with this episode, you know. The Asgard are awfully small, you know, and even though these suits are designed to mold to whoever's inside them, mm-hmm. um, I don't think the Asgard would have designed them in such a way so as to have a full-size human fit in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the intent is to to give these Asgard um, suits so that human actors can play them, so that we don't spend loads of money... Uh, when we want the Asgard to do something action-oriented, you know. Yeah. But that was still a stretch for me. Yeah, I agree it was a stretch. But it also, within within the canon of, of the Stargate universe, it makes sense because the Asgard, if they had made exoskeleton suits that are approximately their own size, you know, we'd get a bunch of three-and-a-half-feet you know, warriors running around. I think that wouldn't be particularly intimidating to the enemy. And also if, about the fact that, that apparently the Wraith know them the Wraith know that they're around somewhere because the Wraith attacked them uh, 10,000 years ago. So I think that mm-hmm. there's there's definitely something about hiding their identity going on here. Mm, that's a good point. Because the return of the Asgard is such a huge monumental moment in the Stargate universe, I would have loved to see something hint towards the future. They've, you know, they've taken something or they've revealed something of their plan. We know that they're what their next goal is, we know what their overall agenda is, something mm-hmm. to, to give us a sense of now they will be a force to contend with. I was sad and disappointed to see them go at the end of SG-1's 10th season, but still, it felt appropriate. It felt appropriate to use the final episode of SG-1 for that monumental thing. And the fate of the Asgard and, and sort of the, the fatalistic view of their future had been a running theme in the show for years. It felt appropriate to me that they had decided to do that, um, and I was satisfied with it, but sad to see them go, and now that they're back in some form, 
I think it's great. I think the Stargate universe is much better off for having those little gray butts running around. And from a pr- production standpoint, you know, we have that puppet sitting in a box, you know. Yeah. Let's use it. Yeah, and CG. Yeah. CG's come a long ways, I think. It's great to see these classic allies, uh, you know, go dark side. We've reinvented. We've, we've spent years talking about, well, how cool would it be to see, like, an evil Nox? The Nox who are just absolute extreme pacifists. What if one went totally dark side and used his, his superpowers for evil? Uh, this, mm. is, this is almost that cool, I think. So, David, what did you think of The Lost Tribe overall? Overall, I would give it an 8 out of 10. It was very satisfying on multiple fronts. It had a lot going for it. You know, it had a great big scale to it. There was a, a lot going for it <laughs> and a lot happening in it. You know, it was a, it was a satisfying second half uh, to the mid-season two-parter. Yeah, I'm giving it a 9 out of 10. I think it was, it was one of Atlantis's strongest episodes. But this is an episode, I think, at the end of the day, that only works when it's connected to part one. It's, it's not like so many two-parters we've seen where part one is sort of a slow build-up and part two is all the payoff. I think the two episodes, First Contact and The Lost Tribe, were equally compelling and equally interesting. And there was, there was more space action, but uh, I think these two episodes go together as one single story. I think that you should sit down and watch them as an Atlantis movie, because that's how these episodes really work. They work together. We have a good deal of listener mail from the mailbag this week. Darren, uh, who's our first submission from? Actually, before I get to the first submission, I need to make a confession. We didn't get a whole lot of mail this week, so I went and pillaged the discussion forums on the Lost Tribe because I wanted to hear what people were saying about the return of the Asgard. Um, So a lot of these come from GateWorld Forum, and we want everybody to write in and call in this week. So, our first comment comes from Min MacGeek, who says the writers wanted them back because, like most of the fans, they like the Asgard. And in my opinion, since they aren't the Asgard we know and love, I'm not disappointed they brought them back. Yes, they're back, but with a good excuse and a new twist. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Ruffles says, Really, I was disappointed. With a blank canvas to invent an alien race to battle, and all you could find was the Asgard? Wow. The cool aliens from the Daedalus variations would have been good. The furlings would have been a super choice. Hell, create a new race. Find some originality. Yeah, this is something that Atlantis, I think, has always struggled with. And potentially you could say future Stargate shows like Stargate Universe are going to continue to deal with this issue, which is the fact that we want them to blaze a new trail and create cool new races and come up with new ideas. But at the same time, they exist within the Stargate Universe. And so we also want to feel... The familiar. Having it lean on SG-1 too much is also, could be interpreted as a sign of weakness. But I don't think that's the case with these guys, with these Asgard. Um, I think it's a chance to use something cool and do something different, you know? And also, like, sew a few threads into the overall tapestry of the Stargate franchise. Yeah. I think there are plenty of opportunities where you could you could say that Atlantis is borrowed a little too heavily from SG-1. But I don't think this is one of them. I think the Asgard are just cool enough that you could do this sort of a move with them. And Shakarava writes, The only thing I liked about this episode was the Asgard. However, I can definitely agree with those people who think that the reintroduction of the Asgard was a bad move at recycling SG-1 material. It's just that the Asgard are so awesome. Didn't I just say that? 
I loved how they kept the Asgard tune as the commander was getting out of the suit. It reminded me of O'Neill's first encounter with them. Who's the point? That's the Asgard theme. And we have a couple of voicemails as well. Hello, my name's JR. I'm from Canada, and I just watched uh, The Lost Tribe, and I have to say that when the bad guys were revealed, I screamed out loud. And people in the house came rushing to know what was wrong with me, and I was so embarrassed. It's really great to have brought this race back, and it's going to be really good. They could do really great stuff with it. So uh, keep on the good job, guys. Hi, my name is Chris. I'm a Stargate fan from the UK, and I'd like to make a few comments about the Stargate franchise as a whole. First off, I'd like to say that I was sort of glad that Atlantis was cancelled. I agree with the powers that be. It probably was the best thing for Atlantis at the time. But I was also starting to miss the older days, especially Season 1, which is, in my opinion, the best season of Atlantis. In Season 1, it was the whole, oh no, we're in another galaxy with no way to get home thing that I liked about it. The exploration of the city, the constant drive to find a ZPM, that's what kept me watching. But when Season 2 arrived and brought the Daedalus and a ZPM with it, I think that things seemed to go downhill from there. I made that comparison with SG-1. Seasons 1-7 to was the show in its prime. The stories were compelling, you wanted to tune in every week, but as soon as I started producing spaceships, it seemed like it became a way for the writers to end an episode quickly. Don't get me wrong, I like the Ori storyline, and Ark of Truth and Continuum. Ark of Truth tied up a loose end, and I'm sorry to see Atlantis having to use a movie to tie up the cliffhanger at the end of the series. Hopefully the quality of the movie's storyline will be similar to the good old days again. Thanks to JR and Chris for calling in on the Gate World Podcast Hotline. We've got uh, one more piece of mail on a different topic that I wanted to talk about. Harry H. writes, I'm a new fan to the podcast and a devoted fan of the site. Personally, I love all the work and efforts you guys put into it. I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts about the future of the franchise in the form of the final two Stargate motion pictures that were alluded to by Dean Devlin at Comic-Con back in 2006. How would those affect current Stargate mythology? and what would be needed to make those films a success. David, do you remember when Dean Devlin said that a couple years ago? He wanted to he wanted to finish his trilogy of Stargate movies? I do remember that. Um, you know, it's, it's the only movie that I can recall where Dean Devlin wrote the end into the first Stargate movie, and of course he wants to turn that franchise into a trilogy um, after its success. Uh, I don't think it would have any impact on the fabric of this universe whatsoever. You have to look at it like Terminator 3 and the Sarah Connor Chronicles. You know, they're just splitting into two different directions. The same concept. Even though SG-1 was grown out of the original Stargate movie, Mm. I would be perfectly happy to see a couple of uh, Stargate features based on Devlin's original concept. I think there's room for those two. Will I consider them canon in regards to the show? No. They're completely different entities, but I would love to have seen what he, where he would have taken them. What about you? It kind of bugs me when franchises take a, a TV show or one of the movies and say, well, basically, we're ignoring this in terms of canon. This didn't happen. I'm kind of a continuity guy, so with television and film, it's hard to get your head into like a DC Comics or a Marvel space where you can have multiple versions of, of continuity existing. Um, as far as Stargate goes, I think it's it's an absolute pipe dream for Dean Devlin to think that MGM is ever going to let him make movies that are separate from the TV series because they have so much invested over the course of so many years in developing the television mythology and audience. I can't imagine that they would want 
to go with a different continuity on the big screen. Yeah, why damage it, right? And this week's listener question is thus. As Atlantis heads into its final run of episodes, what do you think of the Wraith? Do they still make you tremble in your booties, or are they just not scary? I think that's an interesting question. I'll be interested to hear what our listeners have to say next week. And I came up with it! (laughs) Good job, David. Thank you. Coming up on the podcast, October 21st, of course, we're talking about this Friday's episode, Outsiders, which, once again, will feature the return of Paul McGillian as Dr. Carson Beckett. If you listen to the Gate World podcast, you know that that probably also means the return of Gate World Forum moderator, Tammy Farrar. Tammy Farrar. Tammy's going to come on board and talk with David and I about Outsiders next week. That'll be fun. Then we'll do Inquisition on October 28th. That's a clip show that actually, as far as clip shows go, I'm looking forward to that episode. I hope the clips are minimal. And uh, November 4th, we'll be talking about The Prodigal. The Prodigal. Prodigal perhaps? Prodigal... Somebody returning in some Somebody to pick up a package of... Like a maybe? A prodigal I don't know. Wrapped in That may be too much of a spoiler. Well, I'll just it out. <laughs> Thanks for joining us once again for this week's podcast. We want to hear from you. Call the Gate World Podcast hotline at 616-712-1647 or head over to Gate World Forum and post on the podcast feedback thread. We'd love to hear what you think of our conversation today or give us your response to this week's listener question. Failure to do so will result in the seizure of your television set and a kidney. In this episode, of course, we talked about the Lost Tribe and the return of the Asgard. We gave you a preview of our upcoming interview with actor Corin Nemec. Look for that on the site later this week. And for links to everything that we talked about today, head over to GateWorld and look for the episode number 14 show notes. From GateWorld.net, this is Darren Sumner. I'm David Reed. And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast.